0: Open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 12. We will be looking at verses 22 to 50. You haven't been in Matthew 12 for a while, but it sure is a loaded chapter, 22 to 50. We will be discussing lesson number 56 in your books, The Misunderstood Messiah. And as we do so, we're going to be talking about how the Lord Jesus was misunderstood not only by his foes, his enemies, but he was also misunderstood by his own family, which was even sadder in a way. For hundreds of centuries, the people of Israel had longed in their hearts for the Messiah to come and to deliver them. Every prophet and every teacher of Israel had hoped that they personally would live long enough to see him, to be alive when he came, and every young Jewish girl had the desire in her heart that she would be what the one to to uh, be privileged to bring to give birth to the Messiah, to bring him into this world. But as we know, when he finally did appear on the stage of human history, he was rejected. And we have seen this in just some of our last lessons as we heard about doubt expressed by even one as godly as his forerunner, John the Baptist. And we heard criticism about the Lord from the religious rulers of Israel. And we have even seen indifference from those who were the most privileged of all by his presence, those who lived in the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. Now, in our lesson this morning, the religious leaders of Israel to whom the common people looked for direction, obviously, we usually tend to do that as sheep, we look to our religious leaders, so they would look to them for direction and discernment about the Lord Jesus. And by the way, Josephus tells us that at the time of Christ, there were some 60 other men claiming that they were the Messiah. Can you imagine that? Some 60 other, I mean, Satan knew he was on the scene, so he was going to do all he could to distract from him and to disrupt him. So when I read that, I thought, you know, that really makes me understand a little bit more what the Pharisees were doing and why they were scrutinizing him so much, you know, since there were all these other men out there also claiming to be the Messiah, but you know that none of them had the credentials that he had. Of course, you know that none of them had the the genealogy, and none of them could perform the miracles that he could perform. But anyway, um, the religious rulers added to their willful rejection of the Lord Jesus the ultimate sin, which we will be discussing this morning. They blasphemed the witness of the Holy Spirit in what is called the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. This was the epitome of their open rejection to the power and to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so let's look at the event that led up to this ultimate rejection and sin as we see the Lord's power misunderstood and for this I want to look at Matthew 12 verses 22 to 37 starting at Matthew 12:22, where it says then was brought unto him unto Christ one possessed with a devil blind and dumb and he healed him in so much that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed. And by the way, that word for amazed is one of the strongest of all used in the Gospels for amazement. It literally means, in today's terminology, they had their socks knocked off of them. <laughs> they were so amazed. And said, is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they were off at a distance, apparently, and when they heard about this, they said. Now, notice they didn't have the, the nerve to confront him directly, but they said this among themselves. They said, This fellow does, doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Beelzebub is a take on the name Baal and that was the Jews used the term Beelzebub because it meant lord of the filth or lord of the. Who knows? flies lord of the flies verse 25 and jesus knew their thoughts he could read them like an open book and he did have the nerve to confront them directly it says and said unto them now here we have what is called the parable of the divided kingdom he says every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and by the way i'll throw this in for free that was one of the most most um, quoted scripture passages of any during the time of our own history's civil war was that verse right there every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation you can understand why and he says and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand and if Satan cast out Satan he is divided against himself how shall then his kingdom stand and if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they, in other words, your Jewish exorcists, shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else, how can one enter into... Now, this next parable, starting verse 29, is called the parable of the strong man. Or else... How can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Verse 31, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but... The blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. That's the unpardonable sin right there in those two verses. Then in verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. We sort of talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't we? Oh, generation of vipers. Who else called the Pharisees and scribes vipers? John. Oh, generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Boy, that's a sobering thought there, isn't it? <clears throat> Boy, I wish I could eat eat my words for the last 56 years. <laughs> Verse 37, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Okay, we'll stop there for now. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us, we're going back to verse 22, there's so much in here, back to verse uh, 22, scripture does not tell us who brought this uh, particular demon, demonically possessed, blind and mute man to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it may have been the Pharisees themselves. They may have used him as a setup. We don't know. But if somebody is mute, you know what that means. They can't speak. And and a lot of times the reason that they're mute is because they can't hear. So some commentators say chances are the man couldn't hear either. But we don't know that because it doesn't say he was deaf. But this, this was caused probably by um, demonic possession. People who are possessed can have these other problems. I don't know about the blindness, but... I guess that's possible, but he was... Yeah, this was a really difficult case. This was a hard one. Of course, he's had harder. He did have a dead fellow that he raised. <laughs> but this guy was not only possessed, but he was blind, and he couldn't speak. So communication between him and Jesus would be very, very difficult. Uh, but, of course, we know that there's no difficult case for the Lord. Everything to him is possible so it was not too hard for him to instantly not only deliver the man from Satan's bondage, but immediately when he was delivered, he also could instantly see and do what else? Speak. Now think about that. We can understand if somebody is blind and they're healed and they can instantly see. I mean, you know, usually there is a slow progression, but we can understand that better than speaking. Speaking especially if he was deaf. I just spent the last four days with my one-year-old grandson, and he's learning to speak, you know, the word. But it takes, it takes a long time to learn how to speak, to move your tongue in certain ways, to pronounce certain vowel sounds and, and consonant sounds and all that. But this man could instantly speak, had an entire vocabulary. So, I mean, it was an amazing miracle. And that's why it says you know the, the people were truly truly amazed over this miracle so they began to uh, they began to to ask a question and what was this question at the end of verse 23 they said, "Is not this the son of David now the son of David was a messianic term they're starting and now they know their leaders aren't going to agree with this so they're kind of asking like you know this couldn't possibly be the messiah could it they were really anticipating that their leaders would say no this couldn't possibly you know so they were basically expecting a a negative answer but they were starting to really think he could be so in somewhat of a panic the pharisees gave the only um, option that they had other than admitting that jesus's power came from god they knew that there are only two sources of supernatural power one comes from God and one would come from Satan. And because they willfully refused to, to recognize Jesus, to acknowledge him, because um, for one thing, he had publicly denounced them as hypocrites before all the people. So they did, they did not want to recognize Jesus as being from God. So because of this willful rejection, they were left with only one choice. So as illogical as it was, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And of course, there they are speaking of Satan. Because these religious leaders were jealous of the Lord's popularity and because they saw him as an enemy of Pharisaism and traditional Judaism, they who saw themselves as the protectors of their religion could only see Jesus as the enemy of their religion. Anyone in their blinded, self-righteous eyes who criticized their religious system was a natural enemy of uh, of God. But this was really an absurd charge, as the Lord next very logically explains by way of three defensive arguments. And we'll look at those. But we really, first of all, we should just say to ourselves, we really shouldn't be surprised by the absurdity of their conclusion. You know, that rather than doing his works by the power of God, he was doing them by Satan. This shouldn't surprise us. When people are already willfully decided against the Lord Jesus Christ, it really doesn't matter. Have you ever noticed this? What It doesn't matter what logical evidence that you might present to them. If their minds are already mattered, uh, made up. It doesn't matter how many radically changed lives that they may witness or hear about. It doesn't matter how many prophecies that you might show them were amazingly fulfilled in one person. When their minds are made up, sometimes they're just like cement. They don't want to be bothered with the facts. They lose sight also of good logic and good sense and reasonable temper in some cases, and they come up with any kind of response as an excuse for their rejection. And when unregenerate man's reasoning is made to look ridiculous by the Christian's argument, you know what he will then turn to? (laughs) He will then attack the Christian's character. So we shouldn't be surprised, ladies, if that happens to us. If it happened to the master, it will also happen to the servant. So don't be surprised if somebody turns and, and rends you, you know, tries to, to put down your character when you're trying to witness for the Lord Jesus. I know I remember years ago that I was actually accused of teaching witchcraft. You remember that? Here in this Bible study. Accused of teaching witchcraft. And I wore black again today. <laughs> I do have some pink. Well, Mark tells us... <clears throat> Over, and I didn't read Mark's account because it's not as thorough, but Mark tells us in chapter 3, verse 22, that a delegation of scribes also joined with these Pharisees. Actually, this delegation of scribes had been sent from Jerusalem, probably to report back to the Sanhedrin what what jesus was all about you know to scrutinize him and to come back with report a report they wanted to know why he was causing such a stir up there in in uh, galilee so when we're talking about the pharisees there also was this delegation of scribes along with him now this is one of the few times that the lord jesus ever bothered to defend his authority but the issue here was very critical there was only one condition that called for the lord's own self-defense and that was when he was accused of being sinful and here he's actually being accused of being satanic so it's very important that uh, he defend himself remember they had accused him um, of being a sabbath breaker when his disciples went through the cornfields and they plucked some of the ears of corn and he let them eat they accused him of being a sabbath breaker and other times they accused him likewise and he went to his own defense and told them, you know, basically, I can do whatever I want. I'm not breaking the Sabbath. I'm breaking man's tradition. But even if I did break the Sabbath law of God, I have every right to do that because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But it was important for, for uh, people to know that he was not a, um, a sinner. He, he uh, could not be a, uh, in league with Satan or he would definitely be a sinner, right? We have to know. The people had to know and you and I have to know that he was not a sinner because if he was a sinner, he couldn't be our Savior. So his first defensive argument, which we find in verses 25 and 26, the parable of the divided kingdom, states that division leads to destruction. He said, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how shall then his kingdom stand? In other words, he's telling the scribes and the Pharisees that their charge was absurd. It was totally illogical. A kingdom divided against itself will soon fall Through self-destruction, and this is true with nations, and it is true in civil war. Uh, It is also true with a a family unit. If a husband is divided um, against his wife, his wife against the husband, and the children against the parents, the internal division will tear the family apart. The household of Satan, you know, in the spiritual world, it's no different. The principle is the same as in the physical world. So if if the household of Satan is divided against itself, you know, the devil is, is really bright. I'd say that he is the brightest, most clever, most intelligent created being there ever has been, is the devil. So he is not so stupid as to be divided against himself. If Jesus was working in in, uh, collusion with Satan, he would not be going around casting out demons. Satan is not divided against himself. Jesus was not in collusion with Satan. In fact, he was what? He was not in collusion. He was in a direct collision course with satan he was coming head on and where would that collision occur at the cross it would occur at the cross well secondly jesus tells them that not only was their accusation illogical but it was also very prejudiced and why is this well because there were some from their own crowd jewish exorcists who also went around uh casting out demons Um, And the religious leaders supported these men and said that they were performing their works by the power of God. So wasn't it prejudice against the Lord, against Jesus, to approve exorcisms that were attempted by those who were part of their own religious establishment? And yet, although he was doing the very same thing, and I just have to clarify this, a lot of those exorcists were probably doing... Um, things through incantations and occultic. And, you know, Satan can make, he can counterfeit. He could maybe pull out a demon or two just to give credence to these fellas. And then when the house was clean, seven more would move in with the original one. We'll talk about that parable also this morning. So some of this was not genuine. And I'm not saying that all exorcisms are not genuinely done by the power of God. Some of them probably work. But his argument here is that, you know, they're prejudiced. They're saying their own exorcists do their works by the power of God, but he does his by Satan. So they were obviously prejudiced against him. This was very inconsistent and biased. But again, we must remember that where Jesus is concerned, darkness doesn't want the light of truth. Darkness only wants to justify its own wickedness. And then Jesus concluded his second second argument here by telling these men, the scribes and Pharisees, to let their own exorcists be their judges. If they admitted that they performed demonic deliverances by the power of Satan, then they would be actually condemning themselves and the religious rulers who were supporting them and approving of them. But if they said that they did their exorcisms by the power of God, then their testimony would undermine the Pharisees' accusation about Jesus. So, you know, second good, strong, logical argument. And then in his third defensive argument, I'm going fast. You can read your notes on this um, and go over it yourself, but there's so much to cover in this lesson. In his third defensive argument, he used another parable, and this is known as the parable of subduing the strong man. Verses 28 and 30 to 30. And he used this parable to show the Jews that they were not only absurd, absurdly illogical and prejudiced against him, but they were also blind to the obvious. He said that by driving out demons, he was proving that he was actually greater than Satan because he was able to go into Satan's realm, and that's symbolized by the strong man's house, and come away with the spoils of victory. If you're going to rob somebody's house and the man of the house is in the house, you have to be stronger than the man to to uh get out of there with his with the stolen goods, don't you? And that's what he's saying here. In order to go into Satan's realm and and have victory over Satan and and take out the spoils, you know? exercise a demon out of a person he has to be stronger than satan to be able to do that so that's you know that's logical and um it just proves that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world since this is what he had just done and what he had repeatedly done throughout his year and a half of ministry there was only one logical conclusion since there's only one source which is stronger and greater than satan jesus must have performed his miracles his exorcism by the spirit of god since god is the only one who's stronger than satan so he said to them you know if i do basically he said if i do my works by the spirit of god then i have to be the messiah the son of david because the old testament prophesied that the messiah would be able to perform just such works as i have been performing if i am the messiah then you know that I am also the coming king. Therefore, the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is your golden opportunity to accept my offer of the kingdom. And yet, what are you doing? Instead of accepting my offer, you're accusing me of being in league with Satan. And once again, we see then in verse 30 that he says that there is no neutral ground when it comes to him. We cannot just be indifferent. No man can be indifferent when it comes to Jesus Christ. Remember how he told us there's only two gates? There's only two roads, the broad and the narrow. There's either life or death, destruction. There's only two good, two trees. Everything, you know, it's either black or white. Serve God or mammon. And here again, he says, he that's not with me is automatically against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad and this was and still is a strong warning to people that they must make a clear clear definite decision for the lord jesus christ you cannot just be neutral because you're already on the broad road that leads to destruction so we're either for christ or we are against him and since he is the victor (laughs) i have strong advice for all of you it's far better to be for him than against him So Christ called on the people to make a decision. And next, in verses 31 to 37, he seriously warned them of the judgment that would come upon that generation and their nation if they accepted the explanation that had just been given to them by their religious rulers. And so he then spoke of the unpardonable sin, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. he's really speaking this to the people now because the uh, religious rulers of israel have already committed this sin they have declared that he did his works in the power of satan and that they committed the unpardonable sin in doing that now he's warning the people not to do the same what the lord is uh what the lord is first of all doing here is drawing a distinction between the sin of blasphemy against the son of man I think that's in verse 31, and uh, against, a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we want to notice in the distinction between these two sins, blasphemy against the Son of Man, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is that one will be forgiven and one will not be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son of Man. See the first part of verse 32? In other words, blasphemy against Jesus Christ will be forgiven right isn't that what he says whereas blasphemy against the holy spirit he says will not be forgiven now what does that mean does that mean that the holy spirit is more important than jesus how can god forgive words spoken against his own son and yet not forgive words that are spoken ...against the Holy Spirit, whose primary purpose was to testify of God's Son. Well, to understand this, and there has probably been few passages more misunderstood and misinterpreted than these... ...but to understand this, we need to look at certain facts, and we need to go slowly, sort of step by step here. The term, first of all, that is used in these verses for Christ is what? Son of man, all right? Son of man. This title emphasizes what? His deity or his humanity? His humanity. This title, the Son of Man, speaks of his humility and his servitude while he was here on earth, God in flesh. It's very understandable how men could have stumbled over the humanity of Jesus while he was here on earth. It would be very difficult for us today You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, we wouldn't stumble over that. It would be very difficult for us today to uh, fully appreciate the divinity of Jesus if he was veiled in human flesh like he was back then. And this is why allowances were made for blasphemy against the person of Jesus when someone misjudged him on his human level. Didn't the Apostle Paul, formerly a blasphemer of Jesus Christ and a persecutor, of those who followed him and yet he obviously was forgiven of this blasphemy when he recognized what the deity of Jesus Christ didn't Peter also blaspheme Christ in Mark fourteen seventeen with curses and yet he too was restored and forgiven it was hard it was very hard we need to empathize more with the disciples then maybe we do. It was hard for the Lord's disciples to clearly understand that their esteemed rabbi, their teacher, was the very Son of God Himself, God, very God of very gods. They saw Him eat. They saw Him put food in His mouth. They saw Him drink. They saw Him get tired. They saw Him get get uh, hungry. The same as they did. He looked like a regular man. He didn't have, you know, walk around with a halo above his head. He, he just looked common. And he was so humble. He didn't come as they would have expected a real king to come in all kinds of glory and majesty. So it's understandable that to speak against Jesus, the son of man, from the vantage point of incomplete knowledge of his deity, could be forgiven when repentance followed. That's understandable. Some of us were formerly blasphemers of Jesus Christ. But then we repented, right? And we understood his deity. But to blaspheme the direct power and witness of God the Holy Spirit was something far more serious and, and unforgivable. What the scribes and Pharisees had willfully done was blaspheme against the very deity of Jesus, of which God the Holy Spirit had testified. You know, when the religious leaders had rejected the witness of John the Baptist, who was a prophet of God, and I believe they they understood that, they recognized that he was truly a prophet of God, and they willfully rejected his message of, of Christ, they were rejecting, really, the, the witness of God the Father who sent John the Baptist. And when the religious rulers rejected the Lord's own testimony of who he was, they were, of course, doing what? Rejecting the testimony of God the Son. So they rejected the testimony of God the Father who spoke through John the Baptist. Then they rejected the testimony of Jesus himself who is God the Son. But when they rejected the miracles, the mighty works that Christ performed, which were the spirit's witness to who he was, they were, you see, rejecting the final witness of the Trinity. And there was no further witness that God had to offer. They rejected the witness of God, the father. They rejected the witness of God, the son. And now they were rejecting the witness of God, the Holy Spirit. They said, no, he doesn't do that through the Spirit. He's doing all those things through Satan's power. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you see, is blasphemy against the third person of the Trinity. The, The Holy Spirit was God's final witness, his final testimony of his son. And when that official delegation sent from Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin concluded that the works that Jesus had been doing were performed by Satan, they were rejecting God's final witness and this was there was there was no more witness so they were unpardonable uh, they they couldn't be forgiven because they hardened their hearts against all three members of the triune god so this was a turning point in the life of of christ and in the destiny of the nation of israel because the people were like sheep who followed their shepherds and they listened to the verdict of their spiritual leaders. They just could not conceive of accepting Jesus as their Messiah if the Pharisees and the scribes did not approve of him. You know, they would go, for the most part, there were always exceptions. There were, there was that remnant, the true sheep who did hear his voice, but by and large, the nation would go the way of the official delegation. Their leaders had just rejected the work of the Holy Spirit as testimony of Christ's divinity, his deity. So Jesus warned them, the people, to not persist themselves in making this grave mistake, this you know, committing this unpardonable sin. We know, however, that that particular generation of Israel did persist in this sin when they sent jesus to the cross and said we will not have this man to reign over us and when they did this their generation committed the unpardonable sin because they rejected all three witnesses of the triune god the witness of the father the witness of the son and the witness of the holy spirit and because of this sin judgment fell on that generation in 70 a.d look at verse 42 where it says, the Queen of Sh- uh, I'll be reading this in a little bit, but it says, The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. That generation of Israel at the time of Christ committed, along with their leaders, the unpardonable sin. Now, of course, you know there were people who did accept him. So this is speaking in general, corporately, that generation of Israel committed the unpardonable sin what is the unpardonable sin today this is where there's so much confusion can people commit the now nationally no other nation can commit the unpardonable sin because that was a very unique situation for jesus to actually be living in the nation of israel you know in in flesh and blood so nationally It's impossible for a nation to commit the unpardonable sin. But can people commit, individuals commit the unpardonable sin? Yes. Yes, they can. And what is it? Is it adultery? Is it murder? Is it uh, suicide? No. The unpardonable sin today is when a person dies without having accepted Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the unpardonable sin. It's as simple as that. So it's really not all that complicated, is it? Okay, let's uh, move on to look at his person misunderstood. And for this, I want to read verses 38 to 45. Matthew 12, verse 38. It says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Oh, this is so unbelievable. They say, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, but he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Do you think Jonah and the whale is just a whale of a tale? If you do, then you contradict what Jesus believed because he literally believed, and we'll see this in the next verse. He believed Jonas was a prophet, and he also believed that Jonas was in the belly of a large fish, a whale or whatever kind of fish. It was a big one for three days and three nights, as he goes on to say in verse 40. He says, no sign shall be given but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Did Jesus know he was going to die and be resurrected? Yes, he did. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented. They, you know, the citizens of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Let's hope so. (laughs) Jonas was a little bit reluctant. All right, verse 42. The queen of the south, which is the queen of Sheba, shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth. She came from Saudi Arabia to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man. Okay, here we have another parable. It's called the parable of the empty house. He says, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation what we see here first of all is the incredible power of unbelief i mean jesus had just performed a very significant sign miracle which demonstrated his superiority and his authority over satan and his realm and over disease or I should say, uh, what, handicaps, you know, blindness and, and, and deafness, mutinous. He, he'd, already, he'd already demonstrated his divine authority over every realm, hadn't he, in all the miracles that he had performed. Before this, he had raised a young man from death with the power of just his spoken word, and before that, he had healed a servant boy who was dying. And he did so just with the spoken word, and he was at a distance from the boy. And again, with just the power of his spoken word, he was healing many, many multitudes of people of blindness and leprosy and every other consequence of life in a sin-cursed world that you can think of. Healed all sorts of things. He even showed his power over nature, didn't he, with a great fish, a catch of fish, and when he turned water into wine. Yet these Jewish religious leaders ask him for a sign. Man, if that doesn't tell us about the power of unbelief, nothing will. This was evidence that they rejected all his other signs. It was evidence of their unbelief, their willful unbelief. What further proof could he possibly give to them? Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentator, commentary, says, he said, if God had taken the stars of heaven at night... And written, use them to write, Jesus is my son, your king, the Messiah. And they looked up and saw that written in the stars. They still would have said, hmm, wonder how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the evolutionists today. Hmm, wonder how all is that. <laughs> he had performed everything that their Old Testament scriptures had to, had to say that the Messiah would perform. Had they bothered to check out his genealogy to see how perfectly he fit the royal bloodline, not only through his mother, but through his stepfather, Joseph? Um, How he, you know, would have been the king if there had been a king at that time from the line of David? Had they bothered to check out his place of birth, which was Bethlehem? Not only Bethlehem, but Bethlehem Ephrathah, to make it specific, because there was more than one Bethlehem at that time. Just as Micah had prophesied, you know, what more proof could they ask for to convince them that he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah? The answer is what? Obviously, there was nothing else, no other proof, nothing. Nothing he could have done would have changed their minds. There was not enough evidence in the whole universe. You know, even if he had done what Satan tempted him to do and jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and angels caught him, they would have probably come up with something, too. Huh? Yeah, the devil made him do it. Yeah, (laughs) the devil made made you do that. You're not really the Messiah. That was good. There was nothing that he could do to convince them because they didn't want to be convinced. They liked the status quo. They liked having power themselves. Furthermore, if he had given them another sign, he would be catering to their unbelief, and he would have allowed them to set the standards for faith. In verse 39, he says that it's a wicked and adulterous generation which asks for signs. He was stating by this, first of all, that Israel was spiritually adulterous to God because she had rejected his God's Messiah. Their evil hearts were revealed by their corrupt fruit. Their their fruit was definitely corrupt, saying that God's true Messiah. They didn't know God because they didn't recognize him in his Son and uh, they had other gods so they were spiritual they were spiritual adulterers who were their other gods well maybe not the gods like the pagans where they were stone carved out of wood or stone but their other gods were really themselves they they were very much in love with themselves the religious rulers and their own system man-made system of religion secondly He was also saying that signs should not be necessary for faith. You know what? I've got news for you. I never, ever saw a sign. Never had one. I never saw lightning come down and and uh, strike me when I got saved. Did you? I didn't see Jesus in the clouds speaking to me or the stars writing out, Catherine, you need to get saved or anything. Did you? I never saw a sign. Jesus has never spoken to me out loud, but I still believe I have faith, and I know you do too. We don't need signs. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeketh after signs. There are many in the world today who are just like these religious leaders. They say to themselves that all they need to believe, you know, my grandmother was like this for years. All I need is to see something. Give me a sign. I just, I just need a little more proof. They, they flatter themselves with their intellect and with their human reasoning and say that their great minds have to be satisfied with a few more convincing arguments and a few more obvious signs. So they hold off because they aren't satisfied. They refuse to see that there is more than sufficient evidence in the scripture, in the word of God to prove who Jesus is this is where this is all the evidence we need It's all in here more than anybody could imagine there is so much evidence to who Jesus is the real truth of the matter is that they don't want to be convinced and sometimes we just have to step back and and realize that and shake the dust from our feet and go on Jesus told the religious leaders that no more signs would be given to that generation except what sign? The sign of the prophet Jonas. Jonah. And uh, just as Zona Jonah just as Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh, can you imagine what that fellow looked like when he came walking up on the shores of Nineveh? No wonder it got the whole city's attention. He would have been abs. I remember hearing your description. It was just absolutely ghastly. He'd been dead for three days in, a, in the stomach of a of a whale or a big fish. And, a, you know, ew, he'd have seaweed hanging from him and just, oh, oh, horrible. And he comes walking up to Nineveh. No wonder they all trembled But they listened to him. They repented of him from the king on down. Repented in sackcloth and ashes. I'm sure they all came out to see what he looked like. One back from the dead, you know. And they paid attention to that sign. So, you know, they'll be kind of like... um, um, when he gave that comparison of Tyre and Sidon, you know, the citizens would be more tolerable. Well, these, these uh, people of Nineveh, they will stand in judgment over, uh, over the scribes and Pharisees in the nation, that generation of Israel because they believed, and they believed by, by one far less great than, than Jesus Christ. You know, he says, in the, and there's one greater than, how does, is it worded? Behold, a greater than Jonas is here. He says, and then also even the Queen of Sheba, the royal leader of yet another Gentile nation. Nineveh, you know, was Gentile. Another Gentile nation had traveled a far distance to come and hear the wisdom of a mere man, King Solomon. You know, she she was interested enough and curious enough to travel that distance to hear the wisdom of King Solomon. But the Jews had one far greater than King Solomon, you know, far greater than a mere prophet jonah and far greater than the wisest man who ever lived uh which was king solomon i don't think he died very wise but uh but instead of it you know it's interesting i just have to go on another side note i was thinking of all the graders then and most of them we find them in matthew chapter 12 you know how many graders we started out over in matthew 12 verse 6 this was a long time ago when we talked about it but he said that he was greater than their temple that made them mad and then in verse 8 he was saying that he was greater than the sabbath that made them mad now he says that he was greater than jonah the prophet we know they weren't happy about that and then when he said he was greater than king solomon you know he wasn't happy he had also told this is in another chapter john 7 he had told the woman at the well that he was greater than their father jacob one of the patriarchs greater 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 is it true Yes, it's absolutely true. He was greater. But instead of accept, accepting his witness, like the Gentiles, who had openly accepted even less men's witness, they openly rejected him. So there, there would be no more signs. Now you might ask me, well, he just said there would no more sign be given, and yet we know that as we go through our life of Christ study, there's going to be many more miracles that he performed. So how, how did, why did he say this here? No more signs except the sign of my death and resurrection. Well, we have to remember that Matthew chapter 12 is a turning point in our life of Christ study. It was a turning point for him and for the nation of Israel. Before Matthew 12, the primary purpose of the Lord's miracles was as signs for Israel. They were his messianic credentials so that they would accept him. They would believe who he was, and his his miracles were to attest to his person and his power before Matthew chapter 12, everything we've studied up to this point. Now, after Matthew chapter 12, where we've had the official rejection of Christ by the nation of Israel, their delegation of religious rulers, Uh, After this point, his primary purpose in his miracles, which he will continue to perform, but his primary purpose for them will be not to testify to the nation, but to instruct his apostles and his other followers in order to prepare them for the ministry that they would carry on from this point forward, you know, after he was dead and gone but not as signs for the nation the nation has basically rejected him at this point so make sure you understand that distinction well to show the jews what their final state would be if they continue to persist in their willful unbelief he gave them another parable called the parable of the empty house he compared them israel to a man who has found deliverance from a demon and then he goes about trying to clean up his his life and set everything in order on his own through his own strength you know his own power naturally but his good works and his religious efforts at reformation are not enough his house will appear clean in appearance just like the scribes and pharisees look like you know white on the outside whited sepulchers but what were they inside full of dead men's bones so on the outside this man will look really good But the problem is that he's still empty inside. The nation of Israel had religiously purged themselves of the demons of idolatry. And they did that when they were in captivity over in Babylon. They did not worship idols, per se. You know, like we said, stone and wood idols. Um, But although they appeared cleansed on the outside, they were still empty within. If the nation had accepted Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior, they would have been spiritually filled with life. I think of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. You know, bones have come back to life, but they're still empty, aren't they? There's no life within them because still Israel is void of true life. And she won't be filled with life until the Lord's second coming when he finally breathes into them life and they they believe on him and then he does it. But mere religion and tradition is never enough to fill the empty soul of men, is it? Never enough. Because the man in this parable didn't invite the right tenant into his empty, cleaned house, the demon who was once occupying that house came back. He returned. And what else did he do? He brought seven of his buddies along with him. He says, hey, we got a good deal here. This guy really cleaned up his act. It's a much nicer place to live now. And he brought seven of his friends who were even more wicked than him. So the latter condition, the final state of this man, was worse than the first. Israel and her religious leaders, Jesus warned through this parable, they were in serious danger of the same thing happening to them. All of their religious attempts at house cleaning and reformation were totally futile without the power of God. But now actually it's too late, by, by, but by re- resisting the power of God, which they had just done, they were leaving themselves wide open for Satan to occupy them even seven times worse than their previous state. And this is the sad history of the nation of Israel, isn't it, to this day? And this is the sad history of many human souls, there are many people who at one time or another in their lives fall under the influence of the gospel message and they attempt to get their their houses in order you know they attempt to clean up their acts they uh, they put aside some bad habits and maybe they even begin to attend church but this is where this is where it stops you know they they try reformation on their own Rather than inviting the Spirit of the Living God into their hearts by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on their on their behalf, and by and by they will give up their efforts at self-reformation altogether because it's really it's impossible to change without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So when the evil ways of sin and the flesh and the world return, uh, they they find that this man's house is is swept clean and is much more appealing than before and they'll move on in and the man's final state will be worse than it had been you know because now he's turned off to christianity altogether you know he said well i tried that and it didn't work he and so he believes that there is no way to live righteously so he gives up trying there is, did you ever notice that there is no one more difficult to reach for Christ than one who has experienced some strong convictions at one time but never was truly born again? They say, you know, like I just said, they say, well, I've tried that. And they, and they won't go back. They've, they've, they go back to sin in the world, and they're, they're even worse than at the beginning. It's a good thing to drive out, you know, to work at driving out sin from our lives but we need to make sure that we receive the grace and the power of God in its place or else we will fail we must not only get rid of the old tenant which is, you know, the flesh, sin, the devil, the world but we must receive the new tenant which is the person of God, the Holy Spirit well, one minute, the next part he was misunderstood by his family And let me just read verses 46 to 50 and talk about this really, really quickly. It says, verse 46, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hands toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Sad. Not only was he misunderstood by his foes, but he was also misunderstood by his family. This talks about... Mark tells us a little bit more about this, that his family came to get him because it says over in Mark that uh, it says, They went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. You know what they thought? He's crazy. He has really gone off his rocker. And, and that's sad. To be misunderstood by your enemies is one thing, but to mi- be misunderstood by your own family has really got to be, to be hard. But what we have here, and this is important if you can grasp this, we have here a miniature picture of what Christ was doing with the nation of Israel. When he looked around at, at his true followers, his disciples, not only his apostles but his other disciples, and in this crowd of disciples were women too, right? The other that we know that there were women who followed everywhere he went. So he looked at that crowd around him and he said, in effect, Behold, you are my mother and my sister. And my brother. Here, what he was doing, if we consider this statement in light of the passage, we see something really interesting. The nation of Israel, under the leadership of the religious rulers, had just attributed his works to Satan. So they, in other words, called him mad, crazy, a lunatic, a satanic lunatic, right? You know, that's essential, because he, he had to be a lunatic if he's claiming to be God's son and he's doing these things in the power of Satan, they were essentially saying he's mad. Just like his family is here saying he's out of his mind. So he said that there will be no more signs given to them until the resurrection, which means really until it's too late. Because by then they've already crucified him. (laughs) So he was withdrawing his ministry and his relationship from unbelieving Israel, right? From now on, his ministry is going to be for his own followers, and then, right after doing all this, then come his blood relatives, his his you know blood and bone relatives, and they also say that he's lost his mind. So, what he stated in his question, you know, when he said, "Well, who is my mother and who are my brother," it is really what he was doing with Israel. He was speaking; he was breaking off a blood relationship. With Israel and establishing a new family, a new family relationship based not on blood, but on what? Faith and obedience. He said that those who do the will of God are now his true family. And what is doing the will of God? It's believing what God had to say about his only begotten son that he truly is the messiah and the king of kings and the lord of lords so are you in the true family of god today i hope so let's pray father we thank you that the blood and the death of the lord jesus christ cleanses us from all sins whatever we have done however wicked we have been outwardly or inwardly in our hearts and our thoughts and our attitudes there is no sin that is beyond the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we confess our sinfulness before him and repent and acknowledge his payment in full for it, we shall be saved. We ask, Father, that we might live in the full realization and the enjoyment of such marvelous forgiveness and such love and such grace. Thank you for a life that can be lived free from the despair of hopelessness because of what Jesus has done for us. And thank you that we, by grace through faith, are related to him, we are joint heirs with him, and we are your children. We are members of the family of God, the precious, precious family of God. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.